I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whomever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation between myself and Isabella Malbin, a home birth consultant, life coach, hypnotist, and YouTuber. This conversation aired live on YouTube on October 28th. Hi, everyone. We're here. Thanks for joining us um, on The Same Drugs. We're live today with um, my friend Isabella Malbin, who um, I only met in real life recently, which was very nice. Uh, but I'm going to let her intro herself. Tell us a bit about yourself, Isabella. So I am Isabella. I am an adult human female. I think hope, hopefully that's obvious. Um, I am a home birth attendant and consultant. And I was peaked in 2020 after getting kicked out of a fertility awareness teacher training program for refusing to go along with all the gender nonsense. Um, and that's actually relevant to what we're going to be talking about today because I was on a path to um, educate women on the power of learning their bio signs as a means of reproductive sovereignty. Um, and so now I'm doing the YouTube channel. I'm uh, a women's like life coach. I do a lot of virtual coaching now. I still attend births. Um, but yeah, the fertility awareness stuff that I was so passionate about teaching, I actually stopped doing um, because the trans stuff was just, I couldn't ignore it anymore and kind of set me on a kind of tangential um, path. But I am still really passionate about fertility awareness and what it means for reproductive sovereignty and bodily autonomy. So um, I'm excited to get into that. And then obviously the abortion stuff. I mean, I wanted to talk to you specifically in light of this new legislation in Texas, which as I understand it allows um, people to sue doctors who help women get abortions after six weeks. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. And I think it extends to any practitioner, really. Um, it's unclear to me whether the person could also be targeted if they are like a lay person or if it needs to be some kind of licensed professional. Um, but it was quite ominous in its uh, announcement so much so that it's, I think, maybe even intentionally kind of unclear, but yeah. Yeah, because when I was reading about it, it was saying that, or, you know, when I was reading about it in the media, reporting was saying that it was that any individual could sue any person who 
helps a woman get an abortion after six weeks. And then elsewhere I was reading about it and they said specifically doctors. So I wasn't entirely clear on that either. But I mean, regardless, like, I think, like, I feel really frustrated, especially after having talked to people like Mary Lou Singleton and Carol Downer, who you, of course, are very familiar with. Um, and, and that we are only allowed to talk about abortion and the debate around abortion in terms of whether it's legal or illegal. And it's a super, I mean, it's not, to me, it's not a very like feminist approach even, despite the facts that, you know, the majority of feminists limit the conversation to that as well. And then when you try to explain to people or suggest, you know, like, I don't really, I mean, of course I want abortion to be legal, but I'm not actually really that, that invested in that fight because I don't, I don't believe that we should have to rely on these kinds of parameters. And it's not even that I don't believe it. It's that we don't have to, and this wasn't always the way, you know, abortion mm-hmm. didn't only come into existence in like the second wave feminist movement um, within this fight for legal abortion. I mean, women have been, you know, I don't even know. Do you do you even use the term abortion? Is there like a term that you prefer to use when you're talking about these things? Um, I use the term abortion, um, termination, ending a pregnancy, releasing a pregnancy. Um, releasing a pregnancy could also refer to miscarriage. So I think yeah, I think the word abortion, I think the word termination is useful in that it's explicit and it's not like euphemistic either. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to talk about, I think I first heard the term reproductive sovereignty from Mary Lou Singleton and you use that term also. What does that mean? So when I think of sovereignty, reproductive sovereignty, I think of women who are releasing dependence on the state. So who are women who are cultivating resilience, who are cultivating the resources, the networks, the community to be able to source their reproductive needs from one another. So this used to be passed down by mothers, grandmothers, sisters, cousins, Um, Now it's a bit more difficult. Like we've been severed from that matrilineal wisdom. Um, When I think sovereignty, I think of confidence in young women. I think of, um, yeah, really resourcefulness. But again, formally now to get that education, like to be reproductive, to be sovereign in a reproductive sense requires accessibility to education because it's been so systematically removed. So the information is not complex. Like, for example, um, learning how to do at-home abortion or learning how to practice a fertility awareness-based method for uh, preventing pregnancy. Like, the method is not hard to practice. It's accessing that information, which has become so, so difficult intentionally. So um, if you take, you know, uh, birth, for example, birth was systematically taken out of the hands of women, um, so much so that most of the work that I used to do with women when I was coaching women who were birthing in the medical paradigm, so who were planning hospital births, birthing center births, births with 
home birth licensed midwives, um, all of the work was the unlearning and getting back to the core of what all women know, whether we're talking about birth, whether we're talking about um, how to release a pregnancy. I mean, a lot of it actually is intuition. It's just, you know, that it's been blocked on so many levels, on a practical level, on a spiritual level, on an emotional level. It's it's just we have come against so th- all these walls. So, yeah, uh, uh, sovereignty means, like, not having to depend on someone who's going to demand something of you either, right? So having a, con- having a community, uh, interconnectedness, like wanting to call on your neighbor or your sister or your friend doesn't mean you're not sovereign. Um, so when I, again, when I think of sovereignty, I think of a release of these political systems, governmental systems on a state and then federal level. Um, this also, you know, means like not needing, not clinging to needing like health insurance, right? Which again, creates this kind of dependence. Um, And again, we're not talking about emergency states. We're talking about natural physiologic events that happen within the body. Yeah. And I mean, as I understand it, I mean, one of my big frustrations with conversations around women's reproductive rights and reproductive freedoms is that women, especially young women, really don't understand their bodies and they don't understand their reproductive cycles. And that included myself as a young woman. You know, I didn't know um, how ovulation worked. I didn't know that, you know, you can't literally get pregnant any day of the month. I mean, there's, I think you can only get pregnant like two days out of the whole month. Is that right? Like, well, yeah. I mean, ovulation is about 12 to 24 hours, but because of the life of sperm, we have to assume a longer window. So the fertile window is longer because sperm can live inside women for up to five days. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yes, it's true. Ovulation is quite short, but we have to account for a longer window to accommodate the sperm. But yeah, I mean, I can totally relate to that experience of knowing absolutely nothing. Um, and I should say like having like access to healthcare, right? It's, it wasn't a matter of socioeconomic status that prevented, it, it wasn't like uh, women of, of middle class or upper middle class, upper class don't have necessarily even an advantage over understanding their bodies. I have actually found um, that women who have access to, quote unquote, the best hospitals, the best doctors are incredibly gaslit, as were like my low income clients, right? So it's been purposely, this kind of information has been purposely not put into medical textbooks. So if you were to even go to your gynecologist and say like, hey, I heard of this fertility awareness-based method, most gynecologists would laugh in your face and say, oh, you must be talking about the rhythm method. That doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're told over and over and over again that the rhythm method doesn't work. But it's it's to me like when I say, you know, like you can't get pregnant very many days out of the month. It's like women, young women, again, including myself, are super pressured 
to go on the pill, to go on hormonal birth control. Um, and we are told that there's no other option by our doctors, by other feminists, by, you know, schools, um, mm-hmm. school really pushes that on girls, like, and they freak mm-hmm. girls out. It's like, you could get pregnant at any minute. And it's like, I mean, on some level, like, of course, when you're young and you're just starting to have sex, you should be concerned about getting pregnant if you don't want to get pregnant. But what they should be doing is educating girls about how you get pregnant and teaching them about their bodies. And I guess at the end of the day, what it really seems like is like a lack of trust mm-hmm. in women. Like you can't, you can't understand this. You can't handle this. Like we have to control this on your behalf because you're going to fuck it all up. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like women, well, one, one thing I just want to mention is that the rhythm method is not very effective. That's just one of the various fertility awareness based methods. So the, the, the gynecologist who says that isn't wrong, but what she's failing to also share is that there um, are highly, highly effective uh, fertility awareness-based methods. And I saw Jen asked if I could go over some of the stats. I'm, I'm happy to um, because there's a lot of just, yeah, mistrust. So yeah, um, so just for anybody who's watching, um, Genevieve asks, is this the comment that you're talking about? Isabel, on that note, can you talk about monitoring your cycle as birth control and how effective that is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the highest, um, so the highest effectiveness rate as far as the fertility awareness based methods go is called the symptothermal method. And so with perfect use, it's 99.6% effective. Um, And you, if you compare that to the male condom, uh, a barrier method, the male condom is 98% effective. So it's actually more effective than the male condom. Now that's perfect use. For typical use for the for that method, um, it's about 98.4%. So um, typical use, okay, like obviously perfect use, the, the gap between perfect and typical will be, okay, how long has um, this woman been practicing the method? Does she have the support of her partner? Um, it accounts for um, environmental disturbances, uh, and whatnot, but still, right, at its typical use, a symptothermal method, which is the observation of um, your biosigns and the, the recording of your biosigns and, again, learning the literacy of your body, is still 98.4% perfect, uh, effective. Also, I want to make a shout-out to withdrawal, which, again, like, <laughs> You wouldn't, this is like, the method that I always recommend. I'm like, man, I have been using the withdrawal method for over 10 years, like probably mm-hmm. almost 15 years, and it actually works really well. And men know how to do that. Like you don't have to be a genius to know how to pull out and not come inside a woman. I mean, of course, yeah. there's men who do it anyway who are irresponsible assholes, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't date those kinds of men, but, you know, that's not a difficult thing to do and it really does work. Yeah. And it's not something that I would necessarily teach teens. Like I would definitely say the more experienced a man is. Men who know their bodies a little bit better. Totally. Totally. And so all of this, like there's no one size fits all for all of this. Ha ha pun intended. But with, with withdrawal, the, with perfect use withdrawal is 96% effective. And then typical use for withdrawal is 78% effective. So there's a bigger margin um, for error there. Um, But 
again, like, you know, the, this idea that, that birth can, that going on hormonal birth control is even a choice is insane to me. And once I started getting an understanding of the radical feminist analysis, it was so, it made it so much easier for me to see all of the lies, you know, like see all the choice narrative within um, birth control methods. So, you know, like, as you mentioned before, like a typical experience of a young woman, even an adult woman is to either take pharmaceutical drugs, which we know cause like objective harm to the body uh-huh. or to be irresponsible. Yeah. I mean, that's the choice that, that most gynecologists, you know, present us with. Yeah. And I mean, like I stopped using the pill in my twenties because of how it made me feel, because of how it made me feel in my body, like how it made me feel emotionally. Like I could tell that something was different in my body like because I would kind of go on and off and on and off because like I didn't like it. So I'd go off of it. And then my doctor would be like, well, you got to go on the pill. Obviously, there's no other option. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So I'd try like a different, and they'd be like, oh, this one is like a different, like this one is like lower. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd try that one or like this. And and I never liked any of them. So at a certain point, I was like, I don't like this. This is fucking with my body. And then after I decided to go off it, I started looking into it more and doing more research. And I was like, oh, this actually is bad for me. And nobody knows. Like, I talk to women now who, of course, I have friends who are younger than me, um, friends who are in their late 20s, friends who are in their 30s, still on, still using IUDs, hormonal IUDs, still taking the pill. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Like, you're an adult woman. You're in a partnership. You're in a long-term relationship. Like, this is totally unnecessary. There's so many more effective um, safer, easier ways to do this, including withdrawal, including like use condoms if you want to, um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, your partner can get a vasectomy if you guys aren't planning to get pregnant. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about hormonal birth control for people who don't know that this is not good for women? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially like the lie of hormonal birth control is that it regulates your period. That's probably the biggest like talking point that women, the, the biggest like line that, that women will get when they're considering going on the pill, you know? Um, so it's prescribed so young that it's not even prescribed anymore just to prevent pregnancy. So a young woman might come in, she might have um, acne. She might have really painful periods she might have like unstable moods or um, glucose issues, insulin resistance, thyroid issues. It's used as this Band-Aid. And so the biggest danger for women going on it is that they're usually going on it to mitigate some other symptom. And so for the time that they're on this pharmaceutical drug, you know, not to mention all of the side effects that the actual the actual hormonal birth control has. Um, there's this suppression, this long-term suppression, or however long they're on the pill, of what actually needs to be looked at and to be healed. Mm. So the root of what's going on is rarely addressed. And so that when they come off the pill for at any point in time, all of the same issues are there and worse. So um, it's a really dangerous Band-Aid. 
that's how I like to think about it. So um, there was a study, I think it was done in Denmark for, um, I think it was women under 18 were uh, like likely to be prescribed. And I, I can link, I have the study so I can link it somewhere if somebody wants it. But um, what they saw is that women who were prescribed for, um, hormonal birth control were almost always in conjunction prescribed antidepressant medication. Hmm. And so and anecdotally, like I know this to be true. I know women who have had like psychotic, like psychotic breaks um, while being on uh, hormonal birth control. So that includes um, IUDs, um, the pill, um, depot Provera shots, um, longer acting, what they call long acting reversible hormonal birth control. But what they don't tell you is that the damage is irreversible, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean you lose your fertility altogether. Um, but there is no such thing as informed consent with these drugs. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, other common side effects of hormonal birth control is lower libido, depression, anxiety, clitoral shrinkage, this has all been scientifically documented. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it was so ironic that one of the side effects of hormonal birth control is lower libido. And I noticed that in myself before I, again, did my own research and realized that that was like a known side effect of hormonal birth control. Cause like the supposed point of being on birth control is so that you can have sex freely without worrying, but then you go on the pill and you don't want to have sex anymore. So it's really just yeah. for men. It's like, so men yeah. can get their pleasure when you aren't feeling up to it, aren't feeling into it. Um, and they can, you know, not worry about taking responsibility for the consequences of that. Totally. It's totally insane that men are fertile every single day, but we are not, <laughs> we are only fertile for a handful of days generally less than a week if you're super, you know, diligent about tracking your fertile window. Um, yet we have the burden of the responsibility. And, you know, I think it's important for anyone who doesn't already know this to understand that hormonal birth control doesn't regulate anything. It literally turns off ovulation like a light switch. Um which isn't healthy. I mean, our like yeah. reproductive cycles, I mean, you can articulate this better than I can, but you know, it's, it's, it's part of this larger thing that I find where women bodies in general, but women's bodies are compartmentalized. Like we're cut up into these pieces mm -hmm. as though, you know, our uterus or menstruation or reproductive cycles our hormones are somehow separate from our bodies and they're not, it impacts everything. It impacts our health in enormous ways. I mean, and we see this, this is an entire other topic that we don't necessarily need to get into, but we see this in the, the trans activist movement and gender identity ideology, wherein we treat the body as just a bunch of parts, like a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, like, oh, we'll just add breasts and, create a vagina and that's what a woman is and it has nothing to do with our makeup and our reproductive cycles and all these other things you know it's like our body functions in this way for a whole lot of really important reasons <laughs> and we can't just like pluck parts out or like treat it as though if we if we we can just stop ovulation or like mess around with our hormones and it's not going to have a 
a larger impact on on all sorts of other things. Totally, totally. Um, uh, uh, a woman I know named Lisa wrote a book called um, The Fifth Vital Sign. That's like a really awesome resource that, yeah, describes exactly what you just said, which is that our reproductive um, body is not separate from the rest. It makes up who we are. It's actually, you know, like the central operating system of our body. Our womb space is the central operating uh, uh, system of our body, you know, and um, hysterectomy is one of the most common surgeries like performed on women in, in the U S and, you know, it's, you know, my heart goes out to anyone who's had one. Um, and like, that's, that's a whole like, core of you that's your center point i mean women who have hysterectomies like literally they 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 move differently it Mm -hmm. is so integral to the way that we operate not just on a functional level in terms of how our pelvis sits um how it affects all our organ systems but just from an you know energetic standpoint of how we operate like our womb is the source of knowledge and to to turn it off or to have it cut out is really serious. And so I think, yeah, it's interesting that you, you bring up like the, the trans part too, because I feel like when I was trying my, my first, I think I mentioned this to you when we met up in Texas, but one of my first kind of confrontations with a friend was after the Carol Downer event in Albuquerque and a friend sat me down and she said, you know, that fertility awareness method stuff you talk about and teach, that's what fundamentalist Christians do. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, actually, I'm really grateful to the Catholic church for doing all of the scientific research on the efficacy of these methods. Like I am not a fundamentalist Christian. Like what, what do you, what do you mean? So I think it's like that knowledge is bad knowledge and, and those words are bad words because they came from people that we've decided are bad people. Exactly. So you can't exactly. use it. <laughs> and it's like, I think that like you were mentioning like talent, like wondering why your friends keep taking these like hormones. And, you know, I think the resistance to, stepping into sovereignty, bodily sovereignty, the resistance to taking full responsibility is also interconnect, you know, really, really connected to like releasing a paradigm, you know, a paradigm that tells you you're essentially public property and can't be trusted. And it's not a really, it's not a pleasant experience to like wake up to the lies that we've been told as women about our body. I mean, I experienced a lot of rage and sadness and grief, uh, you know, when, when I like came to know that fertility awareness method was a thing, you know, why hadn't my mom told me, why hadn't the gynecologist, why hadn't the pediatrician, like how come no one ever told me, you know, it was, I was was super mad and I just, it almost felt like I'd wasted years of my life. I was like, Oh, because I was on and off hormonal birth control probably from around when I was, you know, 17 or 18 until, I don't know, 26 or so. Um, and, and yeah, and I didn't really start to understand 
my reproductive cycle and, and ovulation and my fertility until into my 30s, like well into my 30s probably. And it was just so, yeah, I was just so angry. And I was like, why doesn't anyone tell us this stuff? Like, why don't we have access to this information? Why are we being bullied by doctors, often male doctors, but women doctors too. I mean, that was, you know, my experience was essentially being, you know, I got pregnant by accident and miscarried. I had planned to get an abortion. Um, and before I could get to my appointment, I miscarried. And my doctor, my male doctor was essentially like, this is a whole other terrible story. <laughs> like he was like, um, okay, so you're going to go on the pill. And I was like, no, I don't want to go on the pill. I don't like the pill. And he's like, well, clearly you have to go on the pill. Like what else you just, you got pregnant by accident. So you have, you have to go on the pill. Like there's no other choice. You obviously, you know, essentially you're obviously an irresponsible person. So this is what you're going to do. And I was like, okay. How and insensitive. put me on the patch and, you know, right away I started feeling horrible. So I went off of it, you know, a few weeks later, but it's just like, you know, just the fact that it's like, well, you're too stupid to figure it out. <laughs> and like, and to not offer you any other, this is the only option. And he obviously didn't give a shit like how that would impact my body um, or my emotional state or my weight or anything else. No, it's there. I mean, they're, they're wildly unequipped in, in, in all the ways it's, you know, I, I wonder, I've heard actually a lot of stories of women miscarrying on the way to their medical abortions. And I think there's like a wisdom in it, really. I think that medical abortion um, is often brutal. I think that doctors are not, yeah, equipped, even like even, you know, uh, clinicians at Planned Parenthood Clinic, like, again, you know, not to like jump right into abortion, but, you know, like these are things that are meant, I believe, meant to be done at home in Mm -hmm. the company and presence and support of sisters. I mean, it's a, whether it's an intentional like uh, termination or um, a miscarriage, the body is recuperating. It's a postpartum. It's a, it's a mini postpartum, regardless of how many weeks, you know, one is, is pregnant. So yeah, it's, it's horrible. I mean, let alone it being like a man. I mean, there are just so many levels of like it being totally rapey and like not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it's, yeah, the wisdom of, of your body that, that it occurred in, in that way. Yeah, I totally think that. And that was, you know, that was my experience was like, I really, really did not want to go get an abortion. And that that was a surprising reaction to me. Because when I found out that I was pregnant, Mm -hmm. first of all, when I found out I was pregnant, I felt elated, which was not the reaction I expected, because I've never wanted to get pregnant before. I've never wanted to have a baby. Um, I've never been interested in babies. (laughs) I didn't want one in my life. I still don't. Um, And I was just like thrilled and I really, really didn't want to go to get an abortion, but I knew that I had to because the man in the picture was not a good man and I didn't want to be attached to him for the rest of my life. And I would have, you know, he was an abusive guy. Like I didn't totally know that at that point. It was not, we weren't in a relationship or dating when I got pregnant, but um, I learned 
later that he was abusive, but obviously there was a lot of red flags around him and I didn't want to be attached to him um, and dealing with him for the rest of my life. I didn't have any money. I was like living in a trailer on it. Like it was just not the right thing to do for me in my life at all. Um, But I was living on a remote Island. So the one doctor that did abortions was a man and I went to see him and he was so mean and cold and he wouldn't make eye contact with me. This was the, the appointment to, you know, make an appointment. And I was so upset that I left crying and I cried in the parking lot. And I was like, there's no way I'm letting this man give me abortion. That was a traumatic experience. Just having that appointment, never mind this guy giving me abortion. So then I had to make an appointment um, in Vancouver at the women's hospital. So that pushed my date back by at least a couple of weeks, if not a few weeks. Um, mm. And in the meantime, I still, I was just dreading going. I just did not want to go through with this at all. And I, I feel very strongly that I willed myself to have an abortion and did various things that I hoped or to, so that hope that I hoped would lead me to miscarry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I, when that happened to me, I just thought, I was like, this is the only doctor on this island in this area. So every single girl, like young woman, whoever has to get an abortion has to go see this horrible, mean guy who won't even look at them and, you know, seems yeah. to, like, no. be judgmental about the whole thing. And That's horrible. Like, and it should just be. And then learning that, you know, like, for many, many I think for centuries, like women have been uh, self-aborting and midwives would would help women um, have abortions and that you could do this at home and it didn't have to be this traumatic medical procedure where you're dealing with people who won't give you any information about your body and, and don't treat you like a human being. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what that's looked like in my life is, you know, I I don't go to gynecologists anymore. I haven't been to a gynecologist in mm, probably six years. You know, I started seeing, you know, because of what you've just described, which is um, the remnants of an overtly rapey system, you know, like, yeah. So yeah, it's heartbreaking that that is most women's like first encounter with also the insides of their body, you know, like even the language around him doing abortions, him giving abortions, Mm. it's the language is so like, it just enforces this idea that one abortion doesn't happen in our body Mm. and to that yeah we are public property um i want to talk more about the abortion issue but i did want to get back to birth control just for a minute just because um i thought this was an important question genevieve asked um can we talk about the dangers of iud's I was hospitalized in 2015 due to a complication and I nearly died from a rare side effect. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of women think that the IUD is sort of like the safer 
version like oh yeah and i i know that you know hormonal birth control is not good i'll just get an iud and don't realize the impact on their body Mm -hmm. or the dangers of that as well yeah i'm happy oh i'm so glad you asked this question jen and yeah um so there are two main kinds of iud's there are hormonal iud's and then there are what's called non-hormonal iud's which are marketed to women as the um, more holistic, this is hysterical. It's marketed as a more holistic alternative because mm-hmm. it's made of copper. So, um, so the hormonal IOD, you know, releases hormones and it also, uh, strips the lining of the uterus. So like the, the purpose of the IUD is to make, uh, pregnancy very, to, to make sperm and a potential pregnancy, um, uh, very difficult to occur in the uterus. So it makes the uterus a super inhospitable environment by creating a kind of inflammatory response in the body. Now it's more severe with a copper IUD because the copper IUD doesn't like emit hormones. So um, this is why women who have a copper IUD um, uh, will uh, often report heavy, heavy bleeding. This is because the body needs to release more endometrium, more lining of the uterus in order to maintain this inhospitable environment for pregnancy and sperm. So um, copper is toxic to, toxic to sperm, which is why it's used as an IUD. Um, so the body is in this like constant <laughs> inflammatory response. Um, which is why it's like with the copper IUD specifically, the woman is like bleeding. You know, I've, I've, I've had friends who have been, uh, they get the copper IUD and they bleed like heavily for like eight weeks straight. That's insane. That's like more than like the more blood than like a woman postpartum from a full-term pregnancy. Like, uh, it's, it's very crazy. So, um, also with the copper specifically, the holistic option um, it disrupts uh, the body's ability to absorb nutrients and minerals. So, okay, the body's not getting these synthetic like estrogens, but it's disrupting the body in a whole other way. So, um, yeah, it's all just marketing. It's a lie. Um, and then the hormonal IUD functions similarly to like a pill. Um, it's multiphasic. So, uh Actually, no, the, the, the hormonal ID, I think, is monophasic in that it releases the same dose of hormones um, for three weeks. And it might be multiphasic and then you have like a week off, which is basically uh, the body's chance to release blood. That's another thing that I want to mention about hormonal birth control and the pill. Uh, women think that they get a period when they're on hormonal birth control. So it's not a period. A period can only occur after like a normal cycle and ovulation. What happens on the pill and hormonal IUDs is what's called a withdrawal bleed. And this was engineered into the hormonal birth control pill specifically to assure women that they weren't pregnant. Also, when the pill first came out and it was monophasic, meaning that it was releasing the same dose of hormones every day, um, women reported not feeling womanly because they didn't see their blood once a month. So they didn't know if they were pregnant because when they didn't see blood, they panicked and thought they were pregnant and they didn't feel womanly. So 
this withdrawal week, this this week, the sugar pill week that's been engineered into hormonal pharmaceutical birth control um, is a big fat lie. So I cannot tell you how many women I have spoken to who whose jaw dropped when I tell them that they have not had a period in 10 years. They say, but I use tampons. No, it's not a period. It's that it's your endometrium, but it's your body's a desperate attempt to reset because it's like, what happened to those hormones that we just took for three weeks? Like they're gone. And so it starts to go into withdrawal. So I just wanted to, to name that. But the last thing I want to say about IUDs is that there are tons of lawsuits with the Morena IUD. And so anyone who's been injured by an IUD can now like take legal action and get compensated pretty well because they're fucked. Um, I, yeah. And I mean, I, I had a friend who went on Deborah Provera when we were in our early twenties and that's, I don't think that, do they prescribe that anymore? I don't hear about anyone using that anymore. Cause I've just heard so many like horror stories about it. I'm pretty sure it's still on the market. I think the Escher implant was taken off the market a few years ago. Mm. Um, I'm so out of the allopathic world that like, I'm actually not up to date on like which ones are still on the market because I'm exclusively like outside of this paradigm now, almost yeah. exclusively um, other than some like random consultations. But yeah, that's a bad one. That's a really bad one. Yeah. I just, I know that, I, I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm, I always feel a bit like guilty of, you know, blaming feminists for things that weren't necessarily instigated or initiated by feminists. But I mean, feminists really have framed the conversation around reproductive rights and around the pill as being liberatory um, and, and, you know, fighting for legal abortion and things like that. And, you know, I know that, you know, when other women or when feminists or when anybody challenges that, you know, this happened to Holly Grig Spall. Mm-hmm. I hope I said her last yep. name right. She wrote Sweetening the pill. the pill. Yeah, which um, explained how, how bad the pill was for women. And she got super attacked by a ton of feminists and I get attacked by feminists just for saying things like, you know, I don't want to have a conversation about abortion that's limited to legal versus illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, we shouldn't have to rely on the medical establishment or on the government on law to allow us to have abortions. We don't need that. Um, women have been having abortions for much, much longer than this debate has been going on. I mean, what do people think happened prior to to this this conversation, which you know began kind of I don't know, I guess in the the '60s or so? Um, I wonder. I mean, first of all, let's sort of back up a little bit. What, what's your reaction to what's going on in Texas right now with this legislation, and then? the activism in response around, you know, my body, my choice. Mm -hmm. So because I'm operating and coaching women outside of this medical paradigm, like entirely, you know, other than like, uh, 
like I am completely bleeding out emergency, which is like also a nuanced conversation. A lot of women who think they're bleeding out and hemorrhaging aren't. Um, but we don't have the tools collectively to know how to manage that kind of thing at home. Um, what do you, so, can you talk a bit more about that? So I'll give you, okay. So recently, uh, um, uh, a couple, so I know a couple women recently who, uh, I know a couple women whose family members and friends have miscarried um, in the past six to eight months. Um, and their stories are all the same. They start to bleed at home. They call their midwife. And when I say midwife, in this case, I'm talking about someone who's been licensed by the state, not like a traditional midwife, not an authentic midwife. I'm talking about a midwife who has been licensed by the state will tell them, go to the hospital, let them check you out. Right. There's this not wanting to take responsibility for attending this woman in her home and monitoring the bleeding, which would require this woman to essentially move in with her. Hmm. Right. And the woman herself has been told her whole life that she doesn't really know what's going on with her body and to defer to her midwife, who she trusts because she thinks the midwife, the licensed midwife is a better option than the OBGYN, which is sometimes true, sometimes not. So um, this woman is, you know, goes to the hospital. She has all these invasive tests and, and procedures um, kind of feeding into this being an emergency when it was never an emergency, you know? And again, this is not to uh, dismiss the real fear women have when they see huge clots coming out of their bodies after they've released a pregnancy. But um, this culture of of creating emergencies out of normal physiologic events, I think needs to be examined. So whether we're talking about birth, you know, um, preventing pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion. So when all of this was going on, the thoughts that I was having is like, oh shit, we need to get even more resourced. Like the timeline has just been pushed up to know who's around, know where, you, you know, know the places and the women you can get the things that you need and to start skill sharing again, you know, and again, always coming back to like, you know, debunking the myth that abortion is dangerous and that women are going to be using like dirty hangers, like, the dirty hanger thing is something that male doctors were doing in clinical settings before they understood like bacteria and like proper hygiene practices. Like that kind of dirty shit was happening in a clinical setting. I love how that was erased. Like I didn't know that. I don't really understand the, the dirty hanger history 
But I mean, I certainly didn't know that that was what was going on in doctors' clinics. And then they have the the gall to say, "Sorry, you can't do this yourself. It's too dangerous. A doctor has to do this for you. And we're actually going to decide whether or not you're allowed to even do that." Like, is if anybody? I, I mean, as if anybody gets to decide whether or not a woman can have an abortion. Nobody gets to decide. Women can do what they want to do. Um, but it's like. Yeah, you did this, and then you still won't let women take care of themselves, and you won't essentially you won't let midwives, you won't help, let other women help women mm-hmm. with this process either. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing that I wanted yeah. to talk to you about as well, which is that, as I understand it, you know, before the the male centered medical establishment took abortion as their own and (laughs) decided to, you know, it's funny to talk about an illegal versus illegal sense because it still is illegal in some ways because, you know, it's, it's only doctors who are allowed to do this procedure legally. Um, But as I understand it, this was something that midwives were helping women with Mm -hmm. for, for centuries before um, midwifery was, was criminalized. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like the problem with midwifery as it stands today is it's it's an offshoot of modern obstetrics. So even using the word like when you use the word midwifery, um, people are hearing I, I think most people are probably hearing like this wise elder woman who like is so loving and is like anti-establishment, but that's not the case. Like midwifery, they they did it very systematically and very intentionally. When I say they, I mean modern obstetrics. Instead of pushing, you know, traditional midwives who midwives who have had knowledge passed down to them generation and generation, instead of pushing them to the outskirts of society, modern obstetrics said, we're going to absorb you and you're going to be more like us, which is exactly mm-hmm. what happened. So I know very few licensed midwives who would move in with a woman and walk with her for like the days that it takes for her to release her pregnancy. Um, I have walked with women who have had second trimester pregnancy releases and we're talking two to three months minimum of like live in support. Mm. Like this isn't uh, like when you, when you allow the body to do what it needs to do and you forfeit, you know, um, a vacuum or medical, you know, in clinic abortion, like it's not so cut and dry. And what that process has done, what I've seen it do is, really create the space for women to trust themselves. Am I okay? Is this okay? What is happening? Like, can I determine if I am in need or not? Yes. Do I need support? Do I need to go to a hospital? Can I manage this at home? Can I change my mind? You know, whatever, whatever that means to each woman. Um, So there's a lot of, I think resiliency that happens with women beyond just a body literacy when space is created for normal physiologic events to occur in the home. Now, I understand that, again, the accessibility for finding a wise woman in your community, like that's the hard part, you know, finding someone, 
you know, the way that I talk about my support for women in birth is like, or when I'm talking to women who are choosing women to attend their birth, I'll, I'll say, you know, it's really important that you find someone who can hold your fear. Because most people can't do that. Most people are uncomfortable holding that. And that doesn't mean you're taking responsibility for what is going on. It means that like you can hold her fear and you can trust her authority, but you can't create that space for someone who, who isn't already there themselves, which is why like the only clients I support now are women who are in total trust and in their power and in their authority and see themselves that way, not just taking my word for it. So, so that's a kind of a long answer to like my thought process around the Texas abortion stuff is just like, Oh shit, we got to like get our shit together because we can't depend on these systems anymore. I mean, they are crumbling before our eyes. I mean, in most cases you can't get, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the case is in Texas, but I know like in New York state, for example, you know, to go into a hospital, to even be seen and be treated, you have to consent, consent, you have to be coerced basically into a COVID test, you know? So again, of course, like, well, they even let you in without a vaccine. (laughs) I don't know. And I don't want to find out. Yeah. No abortions for the unvaccinated. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to be honest. Um, I mean, I, I want to, somebody in the comments, we can talk more more about that issue too in a bit, but um, I want to talk about the various methods of self-abortion and a couple people in the comments asked what you thought about the abortion pill that's available online. Mm -hmm. Miss, I don't know how to say this. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Yeah, The trade name, it's also called Cytotech. So I believe it was like originally developed to treat stomach ulcers, but um, I've seen it most used in uh, when I used to attend births in hospitals, um, I attended a lot of synthetic inductions. And so it's a, it's an induction medication as well. It like dilates the cervix and, and um, basically creates like contraction. So it can be used um, to induce, um, a birth, it can be used to cause an abortion. Um, I've seen it and heard about it used in conjunction with herbs and whatnot. I think that I think there's a lot to be learned, first of all, about different uh, at home abortion methods. And my number one recommendation is a book called Natural Liberty. Um, it's a book that every woman should have, like literally, especially given what's going on with these systems crumbling. Um, because I don't know how much longer also like, we, you know, we're not in control of what gets taken off the internet and whatnot. So I think having this like hard copy book is so essential. So it's called natural Liberty. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, a need for access to drugs like miso for at-home abortion, um, particularly if we're talking, you know, after eight weeks, 
a pregnancy that's been going on for more than eight weeks, like there are herbs um, and protocols that I know women use uh, for herbal abortion. But again, the effectiveness goes down the longer you're pregnant. So if we're talking about a second trimester abortion, um, from all that I have learned uh, and and heard, it is uh, necessary to have miso um, at that stage. So it can be pretty easily found online. You can order it online. Um, it's a pretty accessible drug to have. And I know a lot of women who like stocked up on it when the Texas stuff was announced. So, yeah. And I think, I mean, and I think there's other methods too. Um, I remember learning from Carol Downer about the methods that she was trying to teach mm -hmm. women about, Menstrual or that she still is. Menstrual, yeah, thank you. Uh, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so... Uh, it's a more gentle version of like what a woman would experience in a clinical setting with like a vacuum, but it's basically like this long skinny cylindrical like silicone tubing um, that's attached to a suction. And it's the process of like gently suctioning out the lining of the uterus. So it's inserted through the vagina, up through the cervix, and it uses a kind of a vacuum aspirator to, to suck out the lining of the uterus. So again, something like that is really not so effective, I think, past around eight, eight weeks, 10 weeks. I would have to reference the book, the uh, Natural Liberty book that, that goes into all of that, but um, it's like it's a, it's a DIY thing. Like you could order all the things you need to make one at home. And it sounds like I can already hear people being like, that sounds unhygienic, but like, it's scary until you learn how to do it, you know? And this is the problem. Like, this is the problem. We don't, most women aren't attending monthly menstrual extraction workshops. Well, and there should just be access to women who know how to do it. I mean, there are women who are super experienced with these kinds yes. of processes and procedures. Um, and you shouldn't have to be alone at home trying to figure this out. Like, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that to somebody. Maybe you would. But, like, well, especially yeah. the herbal thing, because I think that you really need to know what you're doing in order for that to be a successful yeah, I definitely think with herbs, dosing is really important. Um, I think the should thing is interesting because like whenever I think of the word should, I think of like not relining, not aligning with like reality. Like, okay, yeah, we shouldn't have, we, like they shouldn't have taken birth out of our hands, but they did. Yeah, and yeah. so now we're here. So what do we do? So, you know, I hear you. And if we're always waiting for like someone to advertise the next thing, like it's never, it's never going to happen. And I feel like a lot of what's going on too is we're in this reset. Like our lines, our matrilineal like wisdom lines have been severed and we're in this reset where we are fumbling a bit, you know, it's like, okay to be like, I don't know everything because my mom, 
didn't teach me this and that's okay. And I'm trying to piece it together through books, Mm -hmm. through the women who are around, who have this knowledge, like Mary Lou Singleton, like Carol Downer. Um, So, yeah, I think that's also a scary part is like no one is coming to save us. And so that's the biggest kind of takeaway from that. I, that I like download that I got from the, you know, Texas abortion ban, um, which is that we need to like get our shit straight because. (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's like, this is about, and as soon as I started learning about all this from Carol and Mary Lou, um, I was like, this needs to be about women getting together and educating one another. And we need to be learning from wise women and women mm-hmm. like Carol and like Mary Lou. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so sad that all of that knowledge has been lost practically. Um, I mean, I guess I wonder, do you think, do you think we should even be bothered to, I suppose, as feminists or women who are invested in female liberation and the women's movement and women's autonomy, be fighting for legal abortion, because I'm just not invested in that fight. I never have been. I don't care. And I especially now don't care because I don't think it's what's important. I think that there's something else we should be fighting for, which is what we're talking Mm -hmm. about right now. Not because I don't care about, you know, I, I do want women to have access to legal abortion if that's what they want to do, but I want them to have real choice and real knowledge and real education, not this, this choice that's been imposed on them and isn't a genuine choice. And they really have no idea what, what, what their options really are because they're told this is their only option, either this or this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think. I think there is a utility in it remaining legal because it's going to be a while before everyone is resourced and we've regained this like knowledge again, if we ever do. I mean, all my research shows that we're headed towards a full on transhumanist like uh, world. So, you know, I think I think there is a utility in it remaining legal. It's not interesting or in my genius to advocate for abortion, for legal abortion. Um, And that's not because I don't think it has a utility, but I've made the choice over the past few years to work towards this other paradigm. You know, like I was very much, Uh, kind of a a liberal feminist within the birth world in that I was always talking about choice and informed consent and harm reduction really was what I was doing. And so I think medical abortion, you know, in some cases is harm reduction. I, I would never classify it as optimal Um, just as I would never talk about hormonal birth control as optimal, but I can also see circumstances where it is functioning as a kind of harm reduction, um, for, you know, for example, for a woman who is not in control of like, basically if she's like raped by her husband seven days a week, like I can Mm -hmm. see how 
for that particular circumstance and and probably others that that there is a utility to it in, in that way so um yeah I, I, once i mean it, it is scary to think about you know women being questioned after a loss because miscarriage looks very similar to abortion. Like the aftermath of it looks very, very similar. So, you know, I, I don't want to live in a world where women are interrogated about whether or not they were in the jacuzzi last night while pregnant, or if they ate cold cuts on Wednesday, you know, like that's also not the world that I want to live in. But I do think, yeah, there needs to be more of a conversation and what, you know, obviously what we're talking about now, which is redirecting energy and starting to release these systems that like were never for us to begin with. Like it's, it's very paternalistic. It's obviously patriarchal. It's yeah. I, I, I sympathize. I guess with the women who are clinging to this because they don't know like the alternative necessarily. Like I really believe that women have not, most women have not experienced the liberation that comes with being body literate and stepping into total trust and confidence. Yeah. Well, I mean, and part of the reason that I, you know, have been involved in minorly in this debate. And when I say, you know, like I've been, attacked by feminists when I say like, I don't really, I'm not interested in talking about legal abortion versus illegal abortion is because of the presidential election where it's like, this is what we're told in any case, you can choose between Trump and Biden and one person is going to get rid of abortion for women and women aren't going to be, you know, women's bodies are going to be controlled by Republicans, by the state or we have to vote for Biden who's going to destroy women's sex-based rights by saying that men mm-hmm. can identify as women and mm-hmm. compete in sport against women and be transferred into women's prisons and um, access women's shelters and transition houses and change rooms and so on and so forth. And to me, I was like, you know, not living in America, so I didn't vote, but I had, I've said many times, you know, I would never, I could never vote for Biden. I could never vote for anybody, man or woman, who is going to gaslight me in that way and who's going to destroy women's sex-based rights completely. And then I'll get, I'll anger feminists or get attacked by feminists who are like, well, but, you know, Trump would have taken away abortion. And I'm like, nobody's going to take away abortion. Like, I guess in some ways they take away abortion, but that's not what I'm talking about. And men can't take away abortion. Nobody can take away abortion from us. We have this power in our hands. Should we choose to take that power back? Um, And this idea that you had to vote for Biden because of abortion is like, no, no, (laughs) that's not true. No. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all that you experienced that. And I guess I, I experienced waves of that, like with the fertility awareness stuff and obviously with, with birth, but um, people don't even bother anymore. <laughs> it's like, well, 
Right. I feel like people are like, you're so, you're so far gone. <laughs> <laughs> She's a lost cause. They're like, you're, are you even voting? Uh, like, I don't think you're even voting. Um, so, yeah. They're like, what are you advocating? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm advocating for things that you don't want to talk about. So, <laughs> like, like, well, who, am, yeah. who are you saying I should vote for? I'm, like, I'm not saying you should vote for anybody. I'm just saying. No. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I feel like people are feeling, I mean, I think also like saying none of this, it's, I think it's, it's a place of desperation. Like, I I don't think it's like derogatory or like disrespectful to say that radical feminists and like, I consider myself a radical feminist, like are desperate. Like we are Mm -hmm. in a state of desperation and we are clinging. And I think like, uh, everyone's looking for a rep to like name their values and their cause. And when they don't see that in you, it's scary because they feel desperate, you know? And I think we are in a state uh, of desperation in, in a lot of ways. And, you know, there's also, you know, a lot of opportunity. And I think one of the big opportunities here is to, for women to start gathering again in circle and skill sharing, you know, and I think we need more, like, I always like making friends with nurses who are like mm-hmm. over the medical paradigm. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like, Oh, it's really cool. Cause you have all these practical skills. Like I know women who want those skills. Like, why don't we get together and we can like practice inserting casts on one another. Like, Yeah, nurses are the best. I like, I said this to somebody recently online, um, which is that when I was living in Vancouver and I was trying to make an appointment with my doctor, who I really didn't like, who is a woman for the record, um, she never listened to me. She didn't really seem to care about anything I was saying ever. She never took me seriously. She was like, well, I can prescribe this thing. And I was like, I don't want a prescription. I want to know what's wrong and why this is happening. It's like, we don't do that here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> but so I would make a point. I would try to make appointments with the nurse practitioners there instead of my, they pressure you to make an appointment with your doctor, but I'd be like, oh, sorry, it doesn't fit my schedule. Cause I always had such a better experience with the nurses. Totally, totally. Actually to like listen to me and care. Yeah, yeah. You know, I like, I, I, I have a lot of critiques, obviously, about the medical paradigm and doctors. And I, I do think nurses need to be held accountable um, in terms of like the complicity in perpetuating a lot of abuse that happens, particularly like in birth and in these like Planned Parenthood clinics and whatnot. Um, but that's awesome that she had some solidarity. She gave you some, like some solidarity there, but, but yeah, it's like, I think, um, it's, it's really screwed up now because to even, and even to go to school, like what we're seeing with the like newest injection is that to access information, like to even enroll in a kind of nursing program to get those skills would require you to take that special injection. So there are a lot of barriers, which again, leads me back to like, we need to be sharing on a peer to peer level. None of this hierarchical, like uh, inaccessible 
systems and testing and, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like a lot of nurses have been pushing back against those mandates um, and quitting or getting yeah. fired, um, which yeah. I find really interesting because, I mean, a lot of people have said this to the point of it becoming a meme where it's like, these nurses used to be the heroes and we're not we because I would never do such an embarrassing thing, but clanging the pots outside the windows <laughs> at 7 p.m. It's like, ugh. It's all, just all the yuppies in my neighborhood. It's only yuppies who do this. Like, <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, and now all of a sudden they're getting fired. They're the mm-hmm. enemy because they're they're declining to get this vaccine that they don't need because so many of them already had COVID and had natural immunity or because mm-hmm. they have, you know, concerns about it or for mm-hmm. whatever reasons they've, they've declined to do this and are now, you know, they went from the heroes to the enemies, which goes to show mm-hmm. how empty that whole thing really was, which is what I felt at the beginning. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, this is just your virtue signaling and you trying to feel good about yourself as so much of this middle-class activism is. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, that is, that's something else I wanted to talk to you about because I tried to write about this, what I saw as hypocrisy around women and feminists who were saying my body, my choice in terms, in response to the abortion debate and in response Mm -hmm. to what's happening in Texas. Um, And then at the same time, supporting the mandates um, Mm -hmm. and suggesting that it was okay to take away women's or people's, I should say, people's rights and freedoms in this case, because for whatever reasons that, you know, nobody knows people Mm -hmm. will start calling them anti-vaxxers, but that's really not the case as far as, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who who oppose the mandates and it's not really usually about being anti-vaccine or even anti-this vaccine um, but just an opposition to to the mandates and this idea that it's okay to ostracize people or tell them that they can't function as part of society, that they can't access education, you know, okay. that they can't cross the border um, and, yeah, participate in society should they decline to get this particular injection. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we're getting into this. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll preface this by saying that um, I have been advocating for the mothers of vax injured kids as long as I've been in birth work because that's when I was exposed to that particular issue. Um, and I really think the gaslighting of these mothers specifically who have spent every waking hour with their children to then be told that this injection that the kid got on the two month visit at the pediatrician's office has nothing to do with a massive regression or brain injury or uh, seizures or whatever. So I just want to name that and I'm, I can talk more about that, but just more of a like broader thing that you've mentioned, which is, you know, you don't have to necessarily be critical of vaccines to be critical of what's going on now, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, mandating medical procedures to access 
basic social services. Um, and so I was in New York um, for the Freedom Rally, uh, which was I think two weekends ago. And that was an event saying no to the mandates. There were nurses who had been fired. Um, there was a New York-based pediatrician named Dr. Larry Pilevsky, who I love and, and follow, and Dr. Christiane Northrup, who uh, was uh, an OBGYN, um, has been denounced by every mainstream media outlet. Uh, she, like, Random House Publishers, the, the publishing companies that published all her best-selling books have denounced her, disowned her. Um, so some controversial speakers were there. Um, Bobby Kennedy, who runs the Children's Health Defense Fund. Um, and I, I met... Um, I met up with Kay Yang, who's the deprogrammer XX, and she made these amazing signs that said, my body, my choice. I control what goes in and on my body, right? And I think her other, other signs that she made said, um, uh, coercion is not consent. Um, and when we say our body, our choice, like we, we mean it now, there are a lot of pro-life women who show up to these events for medical freedom, who hold up the same signs, who don't actually mean it, which yeah. is fascinating. Like, obviously, they're trying to, like, give a big fuck you to liberal feminists by saying, like, whatever happened to my body, my choice. But it's actually really terrible because – women like myself and, and you and like Kay Yang, like we actually mean it through and through my body, my choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. To me, it's not just like a gotcha. No. Because I, I really believe that in all contexts. Totally. <laughs> um, it's not just to say, Hey, you guys are being hypocritical, even though these people are being hypocritical. Um. I mean, it's interesting because, like, I I know, and I've said this a few times over the years, you know, I know feminists who are personally opposed to abortion, um, but they don't want to criminalize abortion mm -hmm. for other women, but they do believe that it's, you know, ending a life or they believe it's, you know, it's not in line with their morals or whatever. And nobody believes me. <laughs> You're like, who? I'm like, well, I'm not going to tell you. It's not my place to tell you. Them. I'm not going to rat them out to to you, who's clearly not engaging with this conversation in good faith. Um, but you know, there can be there can be more than there more than one thing. Um, and I guess I'm. I mean, I, I I don't know if you were finished talking about your the event that you attended in New York. Maybe talk a bit more about that. But I just wanted to to point out that there were all sorts of different positions in this debate, despite the fact that people act as though there is there are only two positions <laughs> where you can either be pro life or you know pro choice. Yeah, yeah. I think. I think, yeah, that's an important thing to bring up. And I think that some anyone who's been in, like, the gender-critical sphere 
knows, I think hopefully knows the importance of allying with women who do not share every single one of your beliefs. And I've come, like, I've been challenged by that just by serving women in birth, religious women in birth, religious Christians, Orthodox Jews. I've served a couple of Muslim families. Like, not everyone is going to check off every single thing and be exactly who you want them to be. And I think that's like a hard pill to swallow when you have a cause that you are so desperate to like further. Mm -hmm. So I understand the frustration, but yeah, I did not, I I didn't, this one woman specifically at the freedom rally, I, I wasn't opposed to her having like, to being morally opposed or religiously opposed, whatever, to abortion. It was that she was using that slogan in vain, you know, and it, it, she was just such a target. And surely, like, press came up to her and basically, like, caught her in this, in this place that I didn't think reflect well on her at all. Um, yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's like the, you know, People, conservatives or right-wing people, the religious right, people who oppose abortion because they're believing it's ending a baby's life, it's ending a life, um, but who also are saying they're Mm pro-choice in terms of opposing these vaccine mandates, you know, they don't seem to understand. They'll argue, well, but this is different because it's actually killing a person, and, you know, the people who support vaccine mandates will try to argue the same thing in a slightly different way, which is that, you know, well, it's endangering. If you don't get the vaccine, then you're endangering other people's health. And you're, so you're killing people. And both positions mm-hmm. are not legit positions as far as I'm concerned. What do you mm-hmm. say to people who tell you that abortion is, is taking a life? Like you don't have the right to take the life of this unborn child or whatever language they use to describe that situation. Mm -hmm. So um, as far as I'm concerned, mom and baby are one until the baby's born. Like the baby is not separate from the mother. The baby is entirely dependent at all times on its mother. So like it's, it's often talked about as the mother baby dyad, like this idea that the baby is an entity separate from the mother while in utero just doesn't make sense to me. And I will call it a baby. And, you know, I, I um, really resonated with an essay that Yolanda Norris Clark wrote a couple years ago that she recently recorded um, as a video and, you know, this idea that there's so much debate over, is it a baby or is it a fetus or is it a pregnancy? Like, mm-hmm. what is it? Like that. Like, it, when it, does life begin? Yeah. Like she would say, and, and I would agree that life begins at conception. I would, I would even go as far to say like before, you know, if you believe in, like if you have any kind of spiritual practice and you've been exposed to, what's called the conception contract. Uh, there's a book called Spirit Babies that talks about kind of what happens with the preborn, like the preconception phase, you know? Um, so if you're into that spiritual stuff, then then 
there's a lot more to the conversation than just the moment of conception. But for our purposes today, yeah, let's say that the moment of conception when the sperm meets the egg and it's, you know, the, moves on down to the endometrium and latches on and starts growing. Sure. Let's call it a baby. That's fine. It is still the mother's domain. It is still that woman's domain. Birth and death happen within the body. It doesn't happen anywhere else. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they are one, they are not separate entities and um, the government has no place invading a woman's privacy uh, in the most uh, invasive way, like literally getting into the insides of her body, demanding what she do with the insides of her body. I mean, yeah, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense on a physiological level that um, we should be thinking about the baby as separate when it's completely utterly at all moments dependent on its host, its mother. So do you, I mean, do you ever, do you ever talk to or debate people who say to you, well, you know, a woman doesn't have a right to, to kill this baby. This is, this would be, you know, their language, not my Mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that it's, it's morally wrong to do so. I mean, I, I can understand why people think it's morally wrong. I understand too, uh, to yeah. be honest. I mean, I don't yeah. think it's an irrational position. It's just mm-hmm. that I think that a woman should be able to decide whether or not she wants to go through with pregnancy. and Yeah. But yeah. I don't, I'm not going to act mm-hmm. like these people are crazy people or it's an irrational position because I don't think that's true. Yeah. Or that they're bad people or that they hate women or that they're misogynists even. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely had some conversations like this before. And um, sometimes I'll ask if they think it's appropriate to demand, especially if I'm talking to a woman and it's usually not women, it's usually conversations with men, but sometimes I'll, I'll ask like, you know, do you think it's humane for a woman to spend 10 months of her life going through this massive transformation and growing a baby that she doesn't want. Like, where's the humanity in that? You know, especially knowing that everything the mom feels, the baby feels. Every endorphin, Every hit of catecholamine, the fear hormone, every pump of cortisol, like the baby gets it all. So like, where's the, where's the humanity in that? If you want to talk about the baby, I don't know. So I I try, I, I also don't, I also am cautious about who I'm speaking to. Like I'm often thinking like, does this person have, has this person ever seen birth? has this person ever seen a miscarriage? Because like, you got to know your audience. And (laughs) if this person doesn't have material power over the women in my community, I'm generally not interested in these kinds of conversations. Um, What I sometimes, if I have the energy and interest and willingness to offer is um, 
you know, talking about the similarities between miscarriage and abortion from what it looks like on the outside. And if they want to live in a world where women are subjected to interrogation at a really, really sensitive time. You know, I also, I never deny like trauma. Like I'm, I'm not one to say that um, abortion isn't traumatic. I think it absolutely can be and often is, especially within the medical paradigm. Um, but I've also, you know, seen at-home abortions that have very significant psychological impacts on the woman. Does it mean that she regrets it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So, yeah, I try not to minimize what it is um, while still defending a, a woman's, you know, sovereignty over her body. Mm-hmm. Um. I I guess I wonder what do you think that feminists messed up in terms of the their fight for what they call reproductive rights and abortion um in terms of this hyper focus on the right to access legal abortion um as well as I think in terms of the right to access hormonal birth control mm-hmm. um, and, and of both of those things being framed as liberatory. And this is the way that women can truly be free. Um, I think we were backed into a corner. I think that it was a top down takeover. And I, I really appreciate Carol Downer for, for talking about this, you know, like it really was a top down takeover. I think you have, really predatory pharmaceutical companies seeing a market that's, you know, really interested in liberation. And you have the pharmaceutical companies with so much power, so much money designing this false narrative. Like it sounds good. Like it it sounds good. I just don't think ultimately it's for women. So I I try not to think of it in terms of like, did feminists go wrong or were they led us, you know, I I more think of it as like they were preyed upon. Like I really see women as victims of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, You know, when I used to teach childbirth education, I used to start the classes by asking women, like I used to pose the question, like, you know, why, why did women give up natural birth? And the responses were really interesting, but it was like, it's like a trick question. Basically it's you know, the, the answer is that women never gave up anything. Women never like turned a blind eye to what they knew to be true. It was systematically taken out of their hands so much so that generation generationally it's, it's erased. It's not just, you didn't have that experience is that your mom and your grandmother were also robbed of those experiences. So I think, yeah, I always come back to like the top down um, just predatory nature of the co-opting of women's sincere desire um, to rule their lives. And if you're told this is the only way you can do it or the easiest, fastest way you can do it, like what woman won't take that offer. 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you go in a moment. We've been here for an hour and a half. Uh, I have to pee. Uh, <laughs> 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 Thank you for all of this. It's been a super interesting conversation. It's been a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a really long time. And it's hard to find people to have these conversations with, to be honest. There's not too many of you guys out there. Um, or perhaps there are, and maybe I'm just not. The wrong circles. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. <laughs> but uh, tell me what bodily autonomy means to you. What is, what's true bodily autonomy? As we know, people talk about that in a lot of various concept, contexts. Um, but what does it really mean? Hmm. I think it's the true choice, which means the absence of predatory, coercive institutions to decide what goes in on your body, how you conceive, how you give birth, how you end life within your body. Um, It's the absence of coercion and I don't see it as an independent endeavor either. I think that bodily autonomy can actually only exist within a resourced community. So women who are capable and skilled and emotionally available to care for one another. Um, It goes beyond the right to refuse an experimental injection. Um, And full literacy over your body. You know, we can't be autonomous until we have full literacy over how our body works. Yeah. Okay, well, I agree. Um, Thanks again for doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk with you again. And uh, I hope that we can do this again sometime. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me on. And there's so much more to say about the mandates and just all of it. I would love to to get into more of that with you sometimes. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of things that came up that we should and could talk about further. For sure do that. Um, and thanks everyone for coming and joining the live chat. I really appreciate it. Um, everyone have a really great night and you have a great night too, Isabella. Thank you, Megan. Talk okay. to you soon. Bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of the same drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. I rely solely on donors and individual supporters to continue to do the work I do. You can donate as little as $5 a month or more. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.